please turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to look at the first 12 verses in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Let me start by reminding us of how we got here. So Paul had planted this church in this town called Thessalonica, but he'd had to leave before he was really done teaching them everything that they needed to know in order to be a mature, functioning church. And so we found last week that Paul was really worried about how they were doing because he hadn't finished with them yet. And he had just received a report of how they were doing in his absence because he'd been really worried. And he heard that they were doing well. And so he was glad and rejoicing about that. But he also heard from this report that they had lots of questions still and that they were still confused on a few issues. And that makes sense, right? Because Paul hadn't finished teaching them everything that he had wanted to teach them. And so Paul sat down and wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians, in order to encourage this young church to endure in the faith and to give them particular practical ways in which they needed to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. So we could phrase sort of the question that Paul is really dealing with in this passage in this way. What difference does the gospel make in the practical ways that we live? Paul's going to consider a few kind of examples of that in our passage. I want us to look first of all at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. All right, so the kind of the center of gravity in these first two verses is right there in the middle of verse 1. He refers to instruction or teaching that he gave them while he was still with them, right? And he summarizes that instruction as being how you ought to walk and to please God. Now, the word walk in the Bible, uh, it, it refers to your way of life. Walk this way means live this way. In other words... Paul was not merely teaching the Thessalonians how they were supposed to live in one particular narrow slice of their lives, right? So when it comes to religious or spiritual things, here's what you need to do. Keep these things in mind. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul meant to teach them how all of life is really supposed to change. It's really supposed to change once you become a Christian. And so after the Thessalonians believed the gospel and started following Jesus, that meant they were now to walk, live all of their lives in a new way. Now another name for this is ethics. What they received from Paul that he had taught them was this this new way of walking in the world was a Christian view of ethics. And there's a lot of ethical theories, right, that people have proposed throughout history. And each one of them means to provide you and me with instruction and guidance for how we ought to live well in the world. And every ethical theory kind of begins with a basic assumption about what kind of goal should we be pursuing. So, why should I live my life in this particular way? 
So for instance, if you believe that pleasure is the highest good, the, the greatest goal that can be pursued, if that is what you believe the best thing in the world is, that goal will produce a particular approach to ethics, right? A particular way of living in the world to pursue that goal. So what's the goal that Paul has held out to the Thessalonians of how they ought to walk? Paul says they ought to walk to please God. The Thessalonians are to live all of life with this goal in mind, pleasing God in all that they do. So Paul gave them this instruction in the past when he was with them. And Paul says that they are now presently doing it. They, they are walking in this way. They are pleasing to God. And he knows that, that they are presently doing that. Because Timothy right, just brought back this report that says they're doing well. And so Paul knows that, that they are doing well. But, but then he says, I want you to do it more and more. I want you to have a, a future-oriented perspective of continually growing and increasing. In other words, Christians in this life never really get it down. There's always a capacity for growth and maturity forever increasing in our knowledge of how to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So, what Paul wants to do is he wants to show the Thessalonians what the next couple of steps are for them as they seek to walk in a way that, that is pleasing to the Lord. On their journey, as they seek to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, Paul wants to give them, here's the next step for you. Here's how you grow in these particular areas. And this is really what Paul's doing in our passage this morning. He's reminding and reinforcing for the Thessalonians the goal of Christian ethics. We're, we're doing all of this to please the Lord. And... He is getting into specifics of what it looks like to please God in particular aspects of life. And Paul's not picking random examples either. He's going to address specific areas where the Thessalonians were kind of confused or off a little bit. In other words, these are the areas where they most needed to grow. Now, a question that would make sense if it came up at this point is, why should pleasing God be the goal that I pursue in how I live my life? Why would I want to live my life to please God instead of some other goal? For instance, why not live my life to please me? Right? That's a really good question. And it brings up something that's, that's really distinctive about Christian ethics. A Christian way of living. And that is this. Christian ethics, a Christian view of how to live in the world, does not stand on its own. It doesn't work by itself. Christian ethics only works in the context of the new covenant. Let me explain what I mean. All through the Old Testament, there's this big problem of sin. People are constantly 
doing what is evil, seeking to serve themselves rather than to serve God and to serve others. Even the people of God, whom God had made promises to, gave them his word, and again and again rescued them from danger. Even they, for the most part, uh, kind of rejected God and chose to go their own way. And so God in the, in the prophets identifies the problem and promises the solution. The problem is not the circumstances around us. It isn't the people in our lives or the things outside of our control and the stuff that happens to us. That is not our fundamental problem. And our problem is also not a lack of education. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not that we're ignorant of what we ought to do because God has revealed himself in his word and has revealed the way in which we ought to walk. God says our problem is actually in our own hearts. So our circumstances, the stuff that happens to us, that may stir up the sin in our hearts, but that stuff was already in there. And when we hear the word of God, we may want to kind of suppress it or ignore it or think that it really isn't relevant, think that it's out of date, think that it's stupid, or we may just hate it. But when we hear the truth but hate the truth and try to ignore the truth, then the problem isn't with the truth. Problems with us. And it's a problem that has a solution. This is what's amazing. All all of human history has been plagued by this fundamental problem of sin. And God declared through the Hebrew prophets how he was going to fix our problem. Kenny read this for us earlier this morning. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27. Here's the solution. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises right here that he's going to fix us on the inside. He's going to give us new hearts so that now when his word comes to us, we don't hate it and we don't want to ignore it. Instead, we love it. We actually actually want it and we want to obey him. He says he's going to give us his spirit so that we're no longer unable to obey him. But now, actually, he says we can walk There's that word again. Walk in the statutes of the Lord. So because God promises to give his people new hearts and to give them his spirit, the result is that they are now able to live all of life or to walk in a way that they'd never been able to before. These promises made in the Old Testament about the new covenant were ultimately fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross as the new covenant sacrifice for sin and then rose from the dead so that sinners who trust in Jesus 
can have their sins paid for and can share in eternal resurrection life that Jesus won for all who trust in him. So when you place your trust in Jesus, what happens is you enter into the new covenant. You get all of the things that God promised. If you're in Christ, then God has given you a new heart of flesh. And that means you don't have a heart of stone anymore. If you're in Christ, then God has given you the Holy Spirit to dwell within you and to enable you to walk in obedience to God's words, which is another way of saying what Paul says in verse 1 of our passage, to walk in such a way that pleases God. So Paul's teaching the Thessalonians how to live like Christians. He's teaching them something that was literally impossible for them to do prior to salvation. Christian ethics, living like a Christian, has a prerequisite. Before you can do it, you have to be brought into the new covenant by trusting in Christ alone. God must first give us new hearts and give us His Spirit. And until that happens... Living all of life to please God probably won't make sense. And it sure won't work. It didn't work for God's people in the Old Testament, and it doesn't work today unless God first changes us on the inside. And when He changes us on the inside, that changes then how we respond to outward circumstances. And it changes how we respond when we, when we hear His Word. We have to start on the inside and move out. So let's look at the particular areas where Paul wants the Thessalonians to grow in their walk with God. Look at verses 3 through 8 with me. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother In this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I think a question that comes up a lot is, what is God's will for my life? Usually we ask that question when we're considering taking a new job or moving to a new city or marrying someone, right? When we want to know in the face of some big decision, what does God want for me in this specific circumstance? Now, of course, the Bible doesn't give specific answers like that, right? The Bible doesn't answer all the questions that we can come up with, and A good clue is, if the Bible doesn't answer your question, it may be that you're asking the wrong question. God makes it clear throughout Scripture, though, what is His will for His people? And the Scriptures can, in that way, provide proper parameters for those big decisions that we come bumping up against, right, and have to make about where we're going to live, where we're going to work, who we're going to marry. Paul tells us in verse 3 what God's will is for His people. What does God want for you? What does God want in your life? God's will is that you be sanctified. 
And the word sanctified means holy. And the word holy means distinct or set apart from. This is actually the way that the Old Testament referred to Israel, right? Israel was a people that were distinct from the other nations around them. They weren't like everybody else, or at least they weren't supposed to be. So Israel didn't eat like the other nations. They didn't worship like the other nations. In every aspect of life, God called them to be different, to be distinct, to be holy. And so Paul takes this separate and distinct idea and applies it to the church in Thessalonica. But this church in Thessalonica is full of Gentile Christians living in a Gentile city. In other words, you wouldn't really think that the Thessalonian Christians here would really be all that different from all the other people in their town. They actually have a whole bunch in common. Yet Paul says that God's will for the church is that they be sanctified, holy and distinct. Like how ancient Israel was to be set apart from other nations. But the Thessalonians are supposed to be set apart from their next door neighbors. And from their friends that they grew up with. And that's because the Thessalonians have been saved by Christ in the gospel. And as the new people of God, they are to walk how? They're to walk in order to please God. And that means they can't walk. They can't live their lives the way they used to. So Paul envisions the Thessalonians embodying a Christian ethic, living all of life for the goal of pleasing God. And that new way of living is going to mean that the Thessalonian Christians are going to be out of step, we could say, with how how their neighbors are walking. And there are two broad areas where Paul wants the Thessalonians specifically to grow in their sanctification, in their being distinct. Sex and brotherly love. So in in verses 3 through 8, Paul talks about sanctified sexuality. And in verses 9 and 12, Paul lays out a vision of how Christians are to function in society and in their jobs and in their church in a way that is truly loving. So verses 3 through 8, Paul gives three specific practical applications of what sanctification, being set apart means for the Thessalonians in the area of sexuality. Three ways in which the Thessalonians ought to be sanctified, distinct and out of step with the unbelieving world around them. Basically, he tells them what not to do. He tells them what they ought to do. And then he reminds them that their actions affect more than just themselves. So number one, what not to do. The Thessalonian church is to abstain from sexual immorality. This is a really general term that covers a host of sexual sins. So this would include fornication, sex outside of marriage. This would include adultery, sex that violates the marriage covenant. This would include prostitution. This would include homosexuality. Basically, every sexual practice that falls outside of God's intended purpose for sex as being between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, anything outside of that would fall into this category of sexual 
immorality. Now, these would, all, these would not have only been common and accepted practices in Thessalonica. These would have been the, the very common former practices of these Thessalonian Christians. This would have been their old way of life. And so it seems that sexuality was an area where the Thessalonians, maybe we could say, were still sort of stuck between their old way of life and their new way of walking in order to please God. And so Paul writes to reaffirm to them, God's will for their lives is that they be sexually pure. And that means, that means, they are to abstain from sexual practices that are denials of God's intended purpose for sexuality. Number two, Paul tells the Thessalonians what they are to do. They are to know how to have self-control. Okay. Paul talks about the same sort of topic and uses a lot of the same language in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Self-control doesn't mean to abstain from sex. That's not Paul's vision. It does mean to, to abstain from sexual immorality. But Paul places sex within marriage over against sexual immorality. Sex within marriage, according to God's design. Do you see the words Paul uses? Holy and honorable. Christian sexuality is not to be like that of the Gentiles around them. Who Paul says, do not know God. That really reminds me of Romans 1. You guys remember Romans 1 that speaks of how people suppress the knowledge of God and therefore are given up in the lusts of their heart to impurity and sexual immorality. In Romans 1, Paul connects knowledge of God with sexual immorality. And he does it here again. So Paul says that what brings us to the root of why Thessalonian Christians ought to be distinct in their approach to sexuality, is because they know God. And they not only know Him, but they love Him, and they want to walk according to His ways. And so Paul says, when it comes right down to it, what you do with your sexuality says something about what you believe about God. But thirdly, Paul also reminds the Thessalonians that they are to be concerned with how their actions affect others, and not just Themselves, He says that no one is to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, in the case of something like adultery, you know, it's not only the two parties involved, is it? There are spouses and parents and children and siblings. And Paul here is drawing the Thessalonian, Thessalonians' attention to the fact that because they are now a part of a church, they have brothers and sisters. They are a part of the family of the church. And therefore, their sin affects the rest of the church. He has more, he's going to have more to say about that a little bit later. So it seems that this was, was a real issue for the Thessalonians. And so Paul wants to make it real clear what the biblical pattern of sexuality is. And he wants to make sure that they understand how serious it is. And so after he gives them these sort of three practical instructions... He then gives three motivations for why the Thessalonians ought to pursue sanctification, why they ought to live distinct and holy 
lives. And these motives are based on what will happen in the future, on what did happen in the past, and what is happening right now in the present. So look, look at his first motive in verse 6. Pursue sanctification because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So the return of Christ has been a topic that Paul has brought up a lot in this book. And here he refers to the fact that Jesus at his return is going to judge the world. And he's going to avenge every wrong. Perfect justice will be applied perfectly on that day. Paul says this is a solemn warning because there will be no escape. The the only way to avoid the wrath of the Son as judge on that day is to be found in the Son as your Savior and, and to be covered by His payment for your sin. But Paul here, we should notice, says the future judgment seat of Christ ought to motivate Christians to now pursue sanctification. Right? He's talking to the church. And he says, because of the future judgment of Christ, you ought to walk in this way. Number two, we have been called by God, not for impurity, but in holiness. So Paul here now is referring to a reality that something that happened in the past, This call of God refers here to the call of salvation. God called the Thessalonians out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And God calls his people into salvation for a reason. And it's not so that we can continue walking in the ways of darkness out of which God called us. And so impurity describes our former life that was left behind when God called us to life with Him. And therefore, our lives are now to be characterized not by our old way of living, but by new ways of holiness. Because that is what God has called us into. So this is why I said at the beginning that Christian ethics can't stand on its own. Being a Christian isn't fundamentally a matter of do's and don'ts. And that means you can't make yourself a Christian by trying to act like one. That puts the cart before the horse, right? A Christian is one who has already been called by God out of darkness into light. And thus the call for holiness is a call to Christians, really, to act like what they are. If if we've been brought out of darkness into light, then we ought to put to death the deeds of darkness and walk as those who belong to the light. So the past call of God into salvation motivates us to live like what God has already made us to be. Third motivation in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. A disregard for sanctification is not a disregard for some man-made moral code. A disregard for sanctification is a disregard for God himself. Now, why is that? Well, remember the promises of the new covenant. God promised that he would write his law on the hearts of his people. That means that 
from the very center of their being, they would now have God-given desires to obey Him, to be holy, to be sanctified. (coughs) And God promised that He would give them His Spirit to dwell within them. And that means that disregard or a lack of concern for that law of God, a a disregard for walking in the way that pleases God, is a disregard for God Himself, who gave us His Spirit in the New Covenant for the purpose that we would no longer disregard Him or disregard His Word. So Paul tells the Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit presently dwelling within them is a sign both of God's enablement and requirement. So because the Holy Spirit dwells within them, the law is written on their hearts, they now have the ability that they didn't have before to live sanctified lives. And therefore, Paul says, we must walk in this way, in holiness, pleasing to the Lord. Finally, look with me at verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. And be dependent on no one. Paul says that they have no need to be taught because they've been taught by God. That's actually New Covenant promise language too. And it's also kind of like what he said back in verse 1. Where he says, "You, you already are walking in this way. You are pleasing to God. And yet Paul calls them to what? To grow more and more in walking this way. So Paul's encouraged by what he sees, by what he hears. He's encouraged by the evidence of the brotherly love that he sees in the Thessalonians. He talked about that back in chapter 1. I don't know if you remember that. He said the Thessalonians are actually an example to other churches in how they care and demonstrate their love for other Christians. And yet here at the end of verse 10, what does Paul encourage them to do? that they do so more and more, that we are always increasing, that we are always growing. And then just like when he addressed the topic of sexuality, Paul lays out three specific applications for how the Thessalonians most need to grow in brotherly love. Number one, he tells them to aspire to live quietly. And that's actually kind of an oxymoron. Paul Paul is kind of saying, let your ambition be to not be ambitious. So the idea of aspiring to something is the idea of undertaking a great task in order to win yourself recognition. So think about back then, a, a wealthy person might, I don't know, build something in the town, provide some kind of service to their city, and then a plaque or a statue would be put up in their honor, right? Paul says that that Christians aren't supposed to be motivated by the idea of receiving those kinds of accolades from others. We shouldn't do things in order just to be seen and recognized and appreciated. 
Rather, the honor that we're to pursue is that which comes from humility and integrity. His second application is real related to the first. Paul says, aspire to live quietly and mind your own business. That's basically what he says. Now, I am a self-proclaimed fuddy-duddy when it comes to social media. I freely acknowledge that. I remember when blogs first started taking off and everyone had a blog and I didn't really like it. I, and I'm, I'm still not sure that it's a good idea for anyone and everyone to so freely be able to make their thoughts publicly available to the rest of us. But that is clearly a statement more about me than about social media. Social media isn't inherently good or inherently bad, is it? It could be used for good things and it can be used for bad purposes. But I do wonder if one of the negative results of social media is that it does open us up maybe to new levels of temptation to go against Paul's exhortations here concerning brotherly love. So we're not to aspire for the recognition and praise of man and we're not to spend our time concerned with and focused on other people's affairs. And I think much of what drives social media is our inherent sinful inclinations to both put ourselves on display and thus aspire for the praise of others. And the flip side is for us to be overly enthralled with what they're doing over there and what they have. And and I think that kind of focus on, on other people, I think, can maybe incline us or make us more susceptible to coveting, wanting the things that we don't have that maybe other people do have, or maybe feeling prideful when we compare ourselves to others that we see. Now, both of those things, Paul says, are not brotherly love that as Christians we're called to. Now, obviously, social media is not the problem because this was a problem in the first century. People were doing it back then. So we can't blame technology. But if we do recognize those same sinful tendencies that were going on in the Thessalonians, if we recognize those in our own hearts, I do think it's good for us to be aware of areas where we may be especially tempted to fail in our calling to brotherly love towards one another. Number three, the third application that Paul gives in verse 11 is to work with your hands. Apparently there were some Thessalonians, there were some in the Thessalonian church that were choosing choosing not to work to support themselves and instead were depending upon the support of the church. Now Paul doesn't really get into what their reasons for not working are here. So some people think it was because they believed that Jesus was coming back really soon so that there was... No need to bother with sustaining life in this world because it was just about over. But Paul doesn't give any indication that this idleness is theologically motivated. It's possible this idleness was just the result of an immature and selfish understanding of what it means for the church to be a family. So it, it, it might have been sort of like my kids' concept of sharing 
right? Sharing means that you need to share with me. So, while it's true that the church is to care for those among them who are in need, it's a different situation, isn't it? If a church member tries to maybe work the system, right? By deciding, hey, the church is my family. And they are obligated to meet the needs of their family. And so, what am I doing working so hard when I could just let my brothers and sisters share with me? But at the end of the day, we don't really know what was what the problem or what the mindset was behind the members who, who, were, who were choosing to not work to support themselves. But Paul is aware of it, and he tells them to knock it off. And, and he gives his readers two reasons why, not only that they ought to work, but really why they ought to pursue brotherly love in each of these ways. In this very last verse, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul gives sort of an external, outward motivation and then an internal motivation. And, and the internal motivation is really the reason behind Paul's commands for church members to work to support themselves. Because it, it isn't loving to burden your brothers and sisters in that way. And there's a difference between benevolence, right? Benevolence, helping those in need, and a person who chooses not to work, but instead presumes upon the continued assistance of the church. Paul says it's not loving. But Paul also says that it's important that the church practice brotherly love towards each other for the sake of outsiders. Now, this is something that's true for all Christians everywhere. But the church in Thessalonica was in a particularly delicate situation. They were viewed with suspicion by the governing authorities. They were absolutely hated by the Jewish community. And they were becoming more and more ostracized from their friends as, and neighbors as they began more and more to walk in a way that was pleasing to God that was becoming more and more out of step with the rest of the culture around them. So the spotlight is on. Everyone is looking at this little church. And so Paul's calling them to walk in brotherly love in order that outsiders looking in might get an accurate representation of the kind of difference the gospel makes. You know, those Christians over there, they may be weird. And they sure aren't like us. But you got to admit, they really love each other. And they really care for each other. Jesus said that, that they, the outsiders, will know that you, the church, are my disciples. They'll know that you're with me. By your love, not your love for them. They'll know that you belong to me by your love for one another. And they see the care and the love and concern within the church. So, God's will for you this morning is your sanctification. That is what God wants for all of his people. And God has gone to great lengths in the gospel in order to call his people into salvation, in order that by his spirit, we may now walk according to his word and live out every area of our lives in a way that is pleasing to God.
Would you pray with me that the Lord would do that in us?